We officially made it. A few different countries, time zones, and microphone issues later, and you and I are finally here. <laughs> we nailed it, finally. Oh my goodness. We did nail it. And you know, I was thinking while we were going through the last 30 minutes of our electronic fiasco, this is just like a startup. You could plan for the absolute best. You could be totally prepared, completely on time. And then like life is just going to throw something at you that you are not expecting. And you have to really roll with it. Oh, completely. Life of an entrepreneur in a nutshell. Our podcast (laughs) is a metaphor for our lives. I'm so excited to have you on the podcast today because I think you and I have so much parallels in terms of our life, in terms of our careers. And I want to just dive right in really and first ask you, what is marketing? Great question. (laughs) That's simple. What is marketing? Honestly, I feel at its core, and I've seen marketing evolve so much and in so many different directions over the last decade, especially with digital and all the different platforms that are emerging. But I think at its core, marketing is storytelling. And it starts with a deep-rooted story and values I really admire what you do in in terms of branding and laying the foundations of a brand's ethos. And I think that's where it starts. And so many brands skip over that vital part of having the foundation, the base and the story behind it, because without that, all the different layers and the pieces that follow are really hollow and they, and they don't have a lot of worth. So nowadays there's so many different facets of performance marketing. There's so many different elements of brand marketing, but I think at its core, it's really just about connecting with consumers and having a strong brand story to be able to to communicate on. So to me, that's sort of the, the base of it. In the early 2000s, you zeroed in on influencer marketing as the path towards storytelling. Tell me about the early days and the potential that you saw in influencers and why you ran down that street. Yeah, entirely was chance and luck. I had graduated FIT way back, it was almost a decade ago, and had really kind of fallen into my first role at Morgan's Hotel Group, which is now Ian Schrager Hotels. And it was a social media coordinator role. And back then, and you started your career right around the same time as well, it was not a significant piece of the pie. And social media was kind of seen as this element on the side that wasn't really taken seriously. So I was just grateful to have the opportunity to work for an amazing company. And I wasn't really sure what that meant. It was right around the time that Instagram had launched and really began my journey there, testing and trying and having the really good fortune to not have a lot of eyes on what we were doing and and really being able to use it as a testing ground. So I began at Morgan's really laying the foundation of their social media strategy, their editorial and content strategy, and started to dabble in this world of influence marketing, which back then was very different. We were making connections with individuals that were coming into town for fashion week or certain events and wanting to stay at the hotels. And it happened really, really organically. We were working together to develop stories that could bring to life the spirit of the hotels, but it really wasn't sophisticated and it hadn't been done before. So again, it was like very much flying by the seat of our pants, trying different things out and seeing what sticks or what, you know, what really worked at the time. So very different from uh, the way it is today, for sure. It's funny because I think about the time when social media first erupted and I often will call it the wild, wild west. 
because it was this new platform and this new medium. And you really just got the opportunity to try things and to throw things against a wall and to see what stuck. And it's interesting. I was actually thinking this morning, the world of NFTs and how crypto is being leveraged for brands is the new wild, wild west. There is really no rule book for how to leverage it. And you're either going to try something and you're going to win and it's going to be a big win, or you're going to try something and it's probably just not going to work at all. I think back to the early days and how much freedom that created for those of us that were testing and learning. I'd love to hear from you, like how you've taken that renaissance, that newness of influencer marketing, and now created more of a process and a system and and a path for it for brands. Over time, I had seen, and it's so funny, I call it the Wild Wild West of influence marketing to exact words. And it still is to this day, the Wild Wild West. You know, a decade later, it still is, there's so many different varying approaches. So throughout my career, I was seeing a lot of PR firms that understood the relationship components to influence marketing and the creativity and thought behind those campaigns. And on the other side of the spectrum, I was working with performance marketing agencies that were really trying to develop a core foundation to track and report on the performance of these partnerships. And in the center, I saw all of these platforms emerging rapidly that were trying to automate the influencer marketing experience. And so I saw the pros and cons of every approach and felt like it just made sense to take a hybrid approach, really rooting our work in a thoughtful and creative strategy in long-term relationships, but also pairing that with a way to track and report the performance of influencer campaigns. And then finally, finding ways to systematize it and make it a little bit larger scale. So it's not just one-to-one. So we kind of looked at all the different varying approaches, the wild, wild west. And I felt like four years ago when I started Dialogue, there was a huge opportunity in the marketplace to take a hybrid approach, which I wasn't seeing happen very often. And I had two options. I could either you know go in-house and build out a department in a larger scale agency like this, or I could do it on my own. So I kind of took the leap of faith, knowing that really having that like belief in seeing it work time after time, that it's not one siloed approach, but having to really see that sort of 360 angle to influence marketing to really drive impact. So I think that's sort of what set us apart from day one. And I think still to this day, um, having that approach sets us apart from others. One of the things you and I talked about previously was the negative connotation that comes with influencer marketing. And when I hear you say things like seeing time and time again, how influencer marketing can make an impact, it even as a marketer raises a little bit of a question for me because there is so much dialogue, no pun intended, and so much conversation today about how influencer marketing doesn't work or that influencer marketing is dead. I think that as storytellers, it's actually a bit of an internal struggle for me because on one hand, I believe in the power of storytelling and influencers and talent are an incredible way to tell your story. On the other hand, I think the industry has become mired in a lack of authenticity in being taken advantage of across all sides. And so there's a big question mark for me of like, what is the impact of influencer marketing and where today, four years later, do you see it going? I find this so interesting and it's something that I'm seeing come up more and more often is that the word influencers really become a dirty word and it's become a dirty word from the creators who don't want to be necessarily associated as an influencer, but more so of a content creator or an artist of brands that have named their ambassador programs or added a spin on it and not called it influencer marketing and also 
as an agency, as, as a consultancy myself, really wanting to demonstrate that what we're doing is building digital strategies and again, not being necessarily painted with this brush of influence marketing. So across the board, there's been this negative connotation around influencers. And in my opinion, I, I think it's for a number of reasons. I think that the market and the industry accelerated so quickly that as with anything, there's the good, bad, and the ugly. I think that there's some brands that do an exceptional job at building really thoughtful in-depth relationships with, with these individuals and others that are just looking to turn it on as a performance marketing tactic and flip a switch, hit some revenue goals and, and then turn it off. And I think also on the creator side, there's some incredible partners that I've worked with for a decade that are doing amazing things and offering value with their platforms and others that are really looking to make a paycheck and promote a product that oftentimes they've never even tried. So I think it's become this very muddied industry across the board, but at its core, I think the, the core reason why there is disappointment or this connotation that it doesn't work. And we talked about this previously. It's the same with brand marketing. It takes time and patience and you have to nurture the program in order for it to really show results. So we're seeing more and more Brands that are coming to us, especially this year, especially with all the iOS changes, wanting to make up for dips in revenue and really shuffling all of their, their performance budget into influence marketing and hoping that it will just be this miraculous new tactic that will, will drive incredible returns. And I've seen that time and time again. I know that it has the power to drive epic returns. But it's because you're being thoughtful in the way that you're forming this community. You're being thoughtful in the way you're approaching these individuals creatively and, and personally. You're really nurturing those relationships long term and thinking of ways to re-engage them. And you're building this really incredible connection with the, the creative community so that when they speak about your brand, of course, people are going to convert because it's so thoughtful and it's so real and genuine. So I think that's where this misconception comes from, that it's a bubble, it's going to pop, it doesn't work. Surely if you approach it with the thought that this is something that can be a miracle dust on your, your revenue goals for a quarter, it's not going to work. It'll fail automatically. So the brands that we've worked with for years that have seen incredible results from Sakara Life and Little Spoon and Brooklinen and Seed, they really invest in these programs, these relationships, and they're patient in seeing this come to life and they're reaping the rewards down the road. So I think that's my biggest takeaway from it. When does influencer marketing go wrong? And are there brands that you don't think, and maybe not a specific brand, but like a category or type of brand or business that you think influencer marketing is just not right for? Oh, absolutely. I think it's like anything. It is the hot buzzing tactic in marketing at the moment. But really, as marketers, you and I, the first thing that you do when you're analyzing an, a robust digital strategy or a strategy across the board in all layers is understanding your consumer, who they are and where you can reach them and what they care about and what their values are. And I'll find, you know, we're, we're approached by some, some really interesting products that should not be leveraging influence marketing. It's, you know, whether they are targeting a demographic that aren't on social channels, or they are a product that you're not necessarily going to be inspired by through seeing it on Instagram or hearing it being described through YouTube or whatever it might be. So I think first and foremost, while this is a tactic that has performed really well for so many brands, it's so important to understand if 
it makes sense for the brand. And then to answer your other question, I think where so many brands go wrong is looking to fill a void and have a quick win with influence marketing. And it's the same thing with brand building. You don't build a brand overnight. It doesn't happen with one brand book. It happens in time, in nurturing it, the story. And it's the same with beautiful influencer program. There has to be multiple layers to it. There have to be many different types of collaborations. Ultimately, you want the consumer to see the product multiple times through multiple different mediums. And that takes a thoughtful approach and strategy and time to bring to life. So especially now this year, after you know what we've all endured and also the, the changes in iOS, I think people are just really frantically looking to kickstart a program as they're seeing all their competitors do, and, and they're not approaching it with, with some patience and, and nurturing it. It's funny because I hear you talk a lot about the brand side, what brands and marketers should expect, how they should approach things, like where they're going wrong in their effort and their, and their vision for an influencer marketing campaign, but not as much around the influencer side. And, you know, it's interesting this, I'm sitting here listening to you talk about this, quite frankly, very lovely idea, which is we're here to make an impact on consumers and we're here to tell a story. And if you foster a true and real and authentic relationship with an influencer or a content creator and talent to really authentically share that story, magic can happen. Do you think that there is the same level of like altruistic, thoughtful dedication on the content creator side? Because I think that it's the both and it does take two to tango. So it is how do you as a brand show up and really engage in the right way? But how do you also find an influencer, a content creator or a talent that is willing to go there with you? And that is also not looking to make the quick surface level buck on your brand and on your brand's name. Yeah, 100%. Such a, such a great point. And I think to answer your question, no, it is, again, the wild, wild west. People are approaching this very differently. There's some creatives that are incredibly thoughtful in the way that they approach campaigns and others that are exceptionally transactional. And I think a lot of it roots in agents nowadays. A lot of influencers are represented by agents. We've worked with some incredible ones over the years, and we've worked with some not incredible ones. And I think when you as a influencer are choosing who will speak on your behalf and negotiate on your behalf, it's vital to have the same approach and to trust the individual to speak on your behalf. Because I, I think oftentimes it feels very financially driven and not a lot of thought and, and creativity put into campaigns. And that's sort of our first deterrent in saying, okay, this isn't the right fit of a partnership and we'll move on. If we're not seeing the agent and the influencer come to the table collaboratively, but also there's a really significant dialogue also around influencers not being valued for the incredible impact that they drive or brands approaching things very opportunistically with influencers. And I think it's exactly what you said. It takes two to tango. It's with any type of relationship, first and foremost, influencers understanding that you have to try the product and really genuinely love the product. So oftentimes influencers will pitch a campaign. I'll say, oh, okay, that's a great idea. But have you, have you tried seed? Do you know the value of probiotics or have you tried Sakara's metabolism powder that you're pitching this campaign? So I think first and foremost, that really is the first indication to us as someone who loves the product genuinely and is open to the, and, and the brand itself. But we kind of work with what we call a curation checklist. And it's a combination of 
demographics, ensuring that the individual aligns with the target consumer and we're speaking to the right individuals. It also indicates value set. So if we're working with a brand that is vegan, organic, and uh, very health focused, and an influencer is partnering with McDonald's the week prior, probably not, it doesn't make sense to align. And obviously there's like, there's nothing wrong with that, but it's just a matter of value alignment. And then also being sure that we're diversifying the types of influencers that we're working with. So just because it's a fashion brand doesn't mean that you only have to stay within the fashion community of influencers, but ensuring that you're bringing to life that brand story across, you know, travel and interior decor and all the different ways that it can come to life. So we're super, super thoughtful upfront in our strategies with clients and saying, what exactly is this curation checklist and what do we look for? And then when we actually start to outreach with that in mind, that will help us curate the right partners, but identifying who will actually resonate. It it comes from human connection, conversations and collaboration. We really brainstorm to think of the best creative direction for campaigns. And I think that's where a lot of these automated platforms go wrong, that you can click and reach out to a thousand influencers. How do you build that genuine connection and that unique campaign if it's not a a human to human conversation? Yeah, I mean, I think there's this insane pressure for quantity of everything and specifically quantity of content. Talk about the wild, wild west. Brands today are expected to deliver an enormous amount of content that is one, completely unsustainable and two, incredibly difficult to actually make matter. And I think what you're saying really reminded me of the early days of Michael Kors when I was at Michael and launched the first ever influencer program. It was really at the end of the day about seeing individual, and in the case of Michael, mostly women, individual talented women who are out in the world, who were telling a story, who had a really clear point of view, and who I felt like matched the values and the ethos of the brand. And everything started with a cup of coffee. I remember being in Brazil and meeting Helena Bordon for the first time or Camila Coelho or Ami Song or Jules, which was like the first guard of influencers for Michael. And it was really about getting to know each other. And every shoot was collaborative. Where should we shoot and how do you want to style it? And sometimes it was in their house. And this was when you had no budget because no one knew what influencer was. We were going in their backyard with cameras and their makeup and their accessories and the whole thing. And it was very personal. And I think that personal investment a lot of what you're saying today is it still matters. It still really matters. And it's funny because as I'm thinking through this, it actually matters in everything. It matters in your personal relationships. It matters in your relationship with your consumer. So why should it not or how could it not matter when it comes to the talent that is ultimately telling the story of your brand? How do you create intimacy at scale? Well, I mean, I think that's where a lot of hesitancy comes with influence marketing because a lot of clients will say, okay, well, that's all lovely, but we want a thousand influencers and we want $50 CAC and we want, and I'm okay, fair. I understand performance marketing and I respect it. And oftentimes brand marketers can sort of ignore that. And I think that's to their detriment. You can't ignore the other side of the coin and everything that we do has to fuel the performance on the other side. But really, how do you scale authenticity? I think it's really... In terms of the relationships that we have nurtured over the years, we work with a very specific group of of clients that speak to a certain audience of of influencers that are interested in their lifestyles. So we re-engage many influencers across the board where they might have first 
been introduced to us through Brooklinen and then we've re-engaged them from Olipop and, you know, ATP or whatever it might be. So I think it helps that we're forming our relationships and they have trust in the way that we approach campaigns. But we do, I mean, we're securing 50 influencers each month for every client and we're reaching out to 200 to 300 monthly. So it's a high, high volume of outreach. And it's really just a matter of, it's like with anything, it's, I was having a conversation with um, a, a Forbes editor about this the other day and how she gets these pitches that are cringeworthy and so unpersonal. It's the same thing of how you approach an editor as you would an influencer. It's really a personalized approach, not blanketed emails, understanding their lifestyle. If we've worked with them again previously, if, if they've had a big life change, we, we mentioned that but really being able to kind of curate the right approach to these campaigns and then really scale it up so that we can hit those targets. So it is a fine balance, but it's not one without the other. And, and I'm certain that if you don't take that human approach and you, you just scale from day one through a platform, all these clients come to us and say, it doesn't work. Influencer marketing doesn't work. We've reached out to 2000 of them and nobody wanted to work with us. Well, no wonder it's, you're not being thoughtful and what makes your brand any different from the hundreds of emails they're getting on a daily basis. Makes total sense. What do you think creates influence? On the point of volume, there are thousands and thousands, actually millions of influencers and talent and content creators out in the world. There's such a difference between reach and influence. What do you think creates influence? What is influence? Yeah, we've been talking about this a lot as a team and, and when we're developing new strategies for clients and more and more influences is equating to offline influence as well. So we're engaging top customers and nano influencers as some of the most influential partners for a client. It's not necessarily about their reach and their following count and in terms of really moving the needle. So I think at its core, I always think of influences offering value. And it can be value in this form of humor from an influencer. It can be value in the form of expertise and knowledge, and it can be value in the form of vulnerability and forming connection and helping people, you know, go through life experiences. But so many times, like you mentioned, there's millions of influencers out there and a lot of copy paste approach to a morning coffee or the same sort of content approach. And if you're not doing something different, and if you're not offering your community with, with genuine value, it doesn't work and you'll stagnate, especially now because it's incredibly hard to grow organically on social. So I think what we really look for is not necessarily an archetype of, of what type of influencer, because we work with so many different types of influencers across the board, but it's really, are they taking the time to connect with their community? And the metric that really demonstrates that is engagement. How many people are swiping up from their Instagram stories are actually watching their Instagram stories, as opposed to how many followers they have. Sticker taps, all these sort of elements, saving their content, everything that you can see of sort of the genuine connection and value that the, the influencer is offering, that's really what resonates for us. So when we're curating the right partners for Ren, it's really not about reach. We've had some influencers with 5,000 followers convert 400 customers. So it's really not about that. It's about the, their connection with their community and, and how impactful you know, they can be to represent your brand. With the brands that we work with, we're generally, as brand builders, we're focused on brand campaigns. So where is there a moment where we're telling a deeper story and we are in need of storytellers to help get that message out there? But I've started to think about it actually in two different buckets. I think there are the influencers that you really are using as advertisers. 
I remember going into the CEO of Michael Kors's office for the first time and saying like, I want to put money towards this thing called influencer, influencer marketing. And I remember the, the argument that I made and the argument I made was I could go buy a billboard and that billboard could sit on a highway and people could drive by that billboard. Or I can buy a billboard on Instagram where not only <laughs> can I actually get a reaction from my fans, from my customers, from my followers, get real-time feedback, but if they follow through to the next thing, which is a click or an email or they go to the website, I can then continue to remarket them. Pure play, how do I use an influencer as a new 2.0, 3.0 version of what a billboard is? And then I think there's influence, which I actually find to be a little bit different. Influence is someone is so compelling and the story they tell around your product, around your service, around your brand is so true and compelling that it draws people to immediately buy it. And what's funny is I'll tell you a story. I was at dinner yesterday. I got influenced by somebody on TikTok to buy this like lip gloss that makes your lips bigger. Never done plastic surgery, like petrified, <laughs> petrified of like putting anything in my lip. Never will have no upper lip, proud of it. But like found this thing that's like, it's basically like cayenne pepper in a lip gloss. I sat at dinner last night and I put it on and I said, not only does it make your lips bigger, but the feeling of the spiciness is actually like kind of addicting. Two minutes later, every girl at the table is trying this lip gloss. Five minutes later, every single girl at this table bought them on Amazon. That is influence. Influence is not me putting up a photo that says I found lip venom. I don't know that that's what it's called, but if you're interested, DM me, I'll tell you. Influence is not just this is a new lip gloss that you should buy. It's that really personal story, which is like, I like the way it actually feels on my lip. And it's kind of addicting to feel like you have big red gum on your lips. When we talk about storytelling, I actually think advertising is not dead. I think advertising is well and alive. I think it's still very interesting. I think there's new forms of it. And the new form of it where influencer marketing really drives influence is when it is actually just replicating what we historically knew as word of mouth. And to tap into that, I think is so hard, which is why influencer marketing is hard. Even though to everyone, and I think probably I'm like making a case for your business right now is like, even though to everyone, influencer marketing seems like, sure, you can run at it. You can hire a thousand influencers and you can throw product at them and you can get free product and you can get free posting. But to get to the crux of the, oh no, this lip gloss actually feels good on me and plumps my lips and was $12 on Amazon and I'm obsessed with it and people trust my opinion. So they're going to then go buy it. That's the ultimate. And I think that is what's very hard to accomplish. You absolutely, you're absolutely right. And I think it goes back to exactly what you mentioned. People really simplify this. They think it is finding a thousand people, ship them product, have them promote and bam, you're going to have concrete returns. And the first thing we do in our strategies is identify the types of influencers. And it's exactly like you mentioned, we have so many different, like mainly three core different types. You have a, what we define as a content creator whose full-time role and career is managing their social channels. And they are experts in content creation and incredible at engagement with their communities. And the value that that brings, exactly as you mentioned, it's quality content that can be leveraged. It's that more sort of traditional advertising billboard type collaboration. And that serves a really great purpose. The second type is a tastemaker. And that's someone who might be an entrepreneur, an activist, an athlete, and they've amassed a following as a result of their 
passions. And so approaching that person, you know, an entrepreneur of a company, the same way you would a content creator is just foolish. You're not going to, you're not going to get the same benefit and value out of those individuals and they have different priorities and what they're looking for in a partnership. So it's really clear. Those are two. And then the third bucket and type that we define as an expert. Now there are doctors, nutritionists, there's stylists, there's buyers in fashion. There's individuals that are absolute experts in their field and have huge followings as a result. What you're going to benefit from an expert in a social capacity is very different from what you're going to benefit from a content creator. So if you don't take the time to really define those types up front and think what is the best approach, what are these people looking for and what's the value in aligning with them? Then yeah, of course, if you send an email to all thousand of them, you're going to have varying different responses. So it's exactly like you said, there's a lot of thought and a lot of strategy in how to form these different categories of influencers and the layers to it. It's if you're going to align with content creators, how can you build upon those relationships over time? Same with tastemakers, same with experts. How can you bring them into your brand story and leverage their voices on your actual brand platforms? There's so much thought that goes into it that you're right. It is really simplified, but in order to do it right, it's it's like any other marketing tactic. You have to be thoughtful and strategic in the way you approach it. Obviously at Dialogue, you guys work with brands mostly on the earlier stage in relation to the world of business and brand. What advice would you give to a startup or to a founder who is just starting to get their feet wet and really looking to develop the right, and I say right as reference to what we've talked about today, the right types of strategies to leverage influencers to tell their story? I tell early stage sort of seed funded startup founders this all the time. I'm very transparent in saying, don't work with us, truly, not yet. Me too. (laughs) (laughs) It's not the right time. And there's so much that can be done in-house and organically from just a founder or an intern that can really tell the storyline, outreach and build one-to-one connections with creatives. And creatives love to hear from the founders themselves and hear their their why and their purpose and what makes their product different. And really, there's so much that can happen naturally through an internal team's efforts to get the ball rolling. And then when we kind of come on board, it's what I call this sort of secret sauce to be able to achieve what we do. There has to be a certain level of brand marketing established in order for us to appeal to the influencer community at a, at a mass level. And it's, you know, excellent press, a really strong social content strategy, a few, you know, celebrities or influencers or individuals that, you know, are ambassadors of the brand and love it organically. And from these sort of initial steps and a great brand website, beautiful visuals, great photography. If we jump the gun and outreached influencers without that in place, we're basically just asking for a favor. And we're saying, Hey, like, can you, would you mind, you know, supporting this early company versus when we come with all of that in place, we can really position it as the brand that you haven't heard about that. You've got to, you know, try that everybody's buzzing about. I always recommend to startup founders, Take the time to invest in that core foundation and really give the influencers something excited that excites them and be patient with it. So my recommendation is always anywhere from like three, six or nine months down the line to activate influencers at scale. You yourself in some capacity are an influencer. And I think probably would be bucketed if we use the buckets you gave as an expert, an expert in digital marketing, an expert in influencer marketing. You know, you're obviously also a female founder. 
how has your journey mimicked the growth of influencer marketing? It feels like the two of you have grown up in parallel. Mm. <laughs> oh man, certainly when I think back to when I first started my career 10 years ago, so much has changed. Like you, I grew up my, well, I, I'm from a Western Canada originally, but uh, the last decade I've been in New York and hearing so much of, of your storytelling to your podcast, I think I really resonate with the workaholic sort of personality type and this, this notion that in order to succeed, it's just, you have to constantly grind and it's up, up, up more, more, more. And that was my twenties in, in New York, certainly. And it served me well. It led to a work ethic, which has, has paid off certainly. And I've learned a great deal from it. But now I think I'm at a point where I'm really understanding just the importance of, of striking a balance. And I think sharing my time between France and, and the States, it's such a dichotomy in the, in the two types of cultures that I've really come to love the appreciation for slowing down and uh, family and friends and, and quality time that the French really have. I think for the longest time, I was so afraid to take my foot off the gas pedal and was afraid that if I am not at my desk for 12 hours a day, grinding, being this like New York entrepreneur, that everything would crumble and fall. And working with a business coach for the last year has really helped me realize that those are just stories in my head. And the moment where I did decide to work in a way in which really fulfilled me and do things that really filled my soul. So this last, a couple of months ago, I, I did a, a three-week intensive cooking course in Paris, which it was always on my dream bucket list. And I thought there's no way I'd be able to manage this and also dialogue. And it's so funny because as soon as I just really owned what makes me happy and what fulfills me, dialogue has taken off. You know, we, we, we're growing and all of our clients have signed and continued their contracts and we have a wait list of clients. And so all of these things that I thought, okay, if I take the time to really fulfill my happiness outside of work, everything's going to slow down and it's all going to crumble and the opposite happened, which I never would have guessed. So I think that's really the realization that I've found as an entrepreneur is that these expectations that are placed on us are really just stories <laughs> and we're in control to, to dictate our life. And if we're not happy in what we're doing, what's the point of it? You know, if, if we're just burnt out and stressed, there's no point in running these businesses. So, and it's still a, a work in progress. I can't say that it's, you know, I'm always constantly still struggling with that, but for me, it's, it's just been a game changer. On the last podcast, we talked about this idea called the zone of genius and what happens when you are in alignment with yourself and in your zone of genius. Obviously, I'm sitting on the floor, zooming in, in my makeshift podcast studio in Greece. I'm looking out at this like beautiful view. And I think despite how challenging the last couple of years have been, one of the things I also did was really take a step back and say, okay, like, where am I going to be most fulfilled? Where am I going to be at my happiest? And I've actually found that what I was so afraid of, the thing I was most afraid of is what's unlocked the ability for me to be a better leader. What I think is actually really interesting, though, about leaning into your zone of genius, let's call it, leaning into your flow state, going for that cooking class, being bi-continental, I think is what you could call it. What I think is a misperception of it, there's one misperception, which is that it is going to not work, that you will fail or that your business will crumble. That is completely not true. I think the other thing that you realize is it's actually hard. 
in the sense that it requires a ton of sacrifice, a ton of hard work to live that ideal. And, you know, I think like you, when I was in my 20s, I thought that if I took an hour to sleep, everything would fall apart. I remember literally being afraid on a Wednesday night to go to bed for four or five hours. And by the way, like I was in junior roles. Now I'm the founder of a company and I sleep way better at night than when I like was one piece of a 4,000 person puzzle. But I think that what you realize is to live your life at a level where you are seeking your happiness and success, where you are really going after what you want, it is incredibly rewarding and also incredibly demanding. I think it's a very powerful idea and powerful message. And it was funny because the more you and I spoke, the more we were like, wait, we are living very similar lives. Yeah. And I, and I think like you are absolutely right. It's, it's not easy. It looks very glamorous and, and yes, but you also worked really hard to get to where you are, to be able to work remote. And it takes a lot of work ethic and dedication. Nobody else is going to really keep you accountable to your timelines and, and to get the work done. And so whether you're in Greece or you're back in your office in New York, if the quality of work is exceptional and you're getting it done on time, I've found that our clients really don't care whatsoever. And that was a huge learning curve for me. For the longest time, I was really keeping it close to me that I was traveling between New York and Paris and, and that I was living this bi-continental life. I thought it was something that people would look down on. And, and now I found that it actually just really brings value to clients because the more experiences you have, the more culture you experience as creative marketers, we get to bring all of that to the table when we're developing strategies. And so if you're just stuck in the box in New York 24 seven, you're going to just keep repeating the same ideas versus if you're actually moving and meeting people and having new experiences. Uh, I found that my creativity has just changed immensely. The more stories you can tell. And I think that that's a very interesting piece and certainly something that has shifted a lot during COVID and I think been a benefit of the transformation of the last two years is that a lot of those lines, those quite frankly societal lines that were put in place specifically on female businesswomen, because I do think there's a thread there, I think have been blurred. And I think now the question is more around the work product. The questions that are asked now are more around the work product. They're more around the results. If you're delivering a great work product, if you're delivering a great experience and you're showing the results that you need, then it's really up to you to craft the life that you want. And I think crafting the life that you want, just like building a business, it's really hard. It's super challenging. But if you go for it and you have the dedication, the passion, the perseverance, then I think anything is really possible. And so I'm very excited to see where you and Dialogue continue to go. I think you guys are a force and it was so nice to be able to chat with another really strong, smart, thoughtful storyteller. So thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much. I am so honored to chat with you. I, I think what you do is incredible. I really, really admire it. So this has been such a great chat and I really appreciate it. <laughs> 